Well, I invite you to take your Bible this morning and open, I forgot part of my notes, All right, Hebrews chapter 4 is where we're at this morning, so I invite you to open there, find your place there, we'll come to that in just a moment, Hebrews chapter 4. One of the most intriguing, if not enigmatic, statements at the beginning of the Bible is found in the creation account in the description or designation of the seventh day of creation. It reads like this. I'll put it on the screen for you so you can just look there. Genesis 2, this is the seventh day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. The seventh day of creation is the culmination of the creation week. We don't often think of it. Day six may be the apex, the creation of man in his image. But as the account reads, the seventh day is the culmination the completion of this creation week. And the intriguing, somewhat enigmatic comment is that God, upon completing his creative work, rested. This is twice. He rested from his work. Obviously not out of weariness. The rested here means he ceased from his creative act, his creative work. And the idea here of resting is this image, if the image of the cosmos is God's cosmic temple, and it is, all through the Bible, the cosmos is really the cosmic temple of God in which he's going to put his image bearers, the idea of resting is that he takes his seat, he takes his throne, he's king over creation, he takes his throne and he enjoys His creation that is very good. His creative act and work is finished. Again, what is intriguing about this seventh day of creation is that there is no temporal framework given. If you read the first six days, we're used to that refrain that comes at the end of every day, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day or the fifth day. There's no evening and there's no morning. And the idea of that is that this day is perpetual. It is ongoing. It's not ending. The other intriguing part of this account of the seventh day is found in verse 3. Not simply that God took his seat there and rested, but it says that he blessed it and sanctified the seventh day. You see that? He blessed it and sanctified the seventh day because in it he rested from all his work. The idea of setting apart and blessing it is that this, this day is not for God alone. It's the point of blessing or sanctifying, setting apart. It's for the good of creation. It's for the good of mankind. There's something good for us 
that is connected to God's resting. That's the idea here. And yet, I said it's somewhat enigmatic because we're not told really anything else. It's intriguing. It's pregnant, we think, with significance. But what does it signify, this seventh day of rest? And as the story unfolds in the Bible, we are given little hints or little clues about this rest, especially after the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and the curse where man will toil, labor by the sweat of his brow, the exact opposite of rest. We begin to get little hints of what this seventh day or this rest might be. In fact, when Noah, several generations from here, when Noah is born, his name, Noah, means rest. Do you know that? It's one of these words in Hebrew for rest, and it's, the question is out there, this one, will this one give us rest from our work and the toil of our hands? That's Genesis 5, 29. That's said there, a play off his name. But we're not sure yet of the significance of the seventh day of rest until we come forward to the Mosaic Covenant and the establishment of the Sabbath day rest. It's only here that we begin to see the significance of this seventh day of rest, that indeed it does have a significance that is connected to us. Let me read from Exodus 20. This is from one of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus 20, the fourth command here, and you're maybe familiar with this, but this is where we begin to see some of the significance. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For, and here's the significance, for in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the institution of this Sabbath day. It's not instituted in creation. There's no command there. There's no Sabbath there. It's just the significance of the seventh day. But here it brings it out in the law, the institution of this Sabbath day. Why is this so significant, this seventh day? day, the Sabbath day. Well, not only is this the basis of our seven-day week calendar, <laughs> do you know that? There's no, other, there's no other explanation in all of history for a seven-day week calendar. None. You understand that? We, 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 can, we can calculate a year, right? We know where a year comes from. We know where months come from with lunar cycles. But where in the world did anybody get the idea to break it up into seven days? It doesn't even divide evenly, right? Well, there's only one explanation. It's right here. It's a reference back to that creation week and the establishment of this week in Israel's life of this seven-day work week. So not only is it significant that way that we think about, we continue to keep that. That is seven days a week. There's there's just an implicit, built-in, embedded reminder in our calendar of God as creator. That's where it comes from. But beyond that, This command points to the significance of that seventh day rest of God. Sabbath, Shabbat, that word, actually that word doesn't mean rest. Shabbat means to cease, 
to cease, to stop. And in this context, it means the day that marks the ceasing of the week's work. Six days you work, the seventh you Shabbat, you stop, you cease work. That's what Shabbat means. It's the day that marks the ceasing of the week's work there of creation. This Shabbat, this ceasing, was, yes, it was a law and it had regulations under the Mosaic Covenant, but it was to be a blessing. It was to be a blessing for the people. Now, we begin to see the significance that there is some connection to us in this seventh-day rest of God as it relates to man. Now, I don't have time this morning to just walk us through the Old Testament and pick up all the clues that teach us about rest. So I'm going to give you, it's already on the screen there, this one-sentence summary of this kind of theology of rest in the seventh day from the Old Testament. By imitating God in creation, that's what he's asking them to do in the Sabbath here, they're imitating God, working six days, resting, ceasing from work on the seventh. By imitating God in creation, man is invited to join God in his rest, this rest, which is a ceasing from toil and bondage. We don't have time to develop it, but he's going to connect this rest seventh day to liberation from Egypt, even salvation. So ceasing from toil and bondage and experiencing in some way the age to come, this age of untarnished blessing. So that, as you trace it through, Shabbat, Sabbath, is actually forward-looking. It's the point of it. It's joining God, yes, in this creation rest, ultimately signifying the rest that is to come, the age that is to come. Sabbath is meant to be forward-looking, that we're experiencing in this day what will ultimately be true. We're experiencing the rest of God that he entered on the seventh day of creation. God took his rest, and he's there perpetually. And there's an invitation to join him. And the Sabbath law is this repetition, but ultimately a pointing forward to enjoying God, to joining him in his rest, this enjoyment, refreshment, and satisfaction. Now, I belabor this point here at the beginning because this understanding of God's rest is precisely the view of the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, our chapter. So if you're there, look there closer now, Hebrews chapter 4. This is precisely the view. Our author reads the Old Testament and he reads it very closely and he reads it very well and he puts clues together for us to draw out the significance. And he does that here with this idea of rest. And so we're going to see that this morning. Entering God's rest. That's the heading here, the title. Entering God's rest. We're going to look specifically at Hebrews 4, verses 3 through 11, where he develops and puts more clues together for us from the Old Testament. Now, just to remind you, if you haven't been with us, This idea of God's rest is given in the context of a warning. A warning. The author of Hebrews is warning us, readers, Christians, about the danger of unbelief. That's the larger section. The danger of falling away in unbelief from Christ. And we have seen that, so I'm not going to rehash all that because we've looked at it for several weeks. 
In this warning, though, he uses the example of the people, God's covenant people in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, under Moses, who did not ultimately believe God, nor believe his promises, and failed to enter the promised land. Instead, they died under God's judgment in the wilderness. He's taking that as his example to warn us, us who are in this new covenant, us who are believing, to warn us about the danger of unbelief and the failure to enter, ultimately, God's rest. He uses, as we have seen many times now, he uses as his warning Psalm 95. He's using an Old Testament text directly to warn us, because that's what Psalm 95, the last half of it, is about. It's the Holy Spirit's given warning to God's people based on those events back in the wilderness, though written centuries later, the Holy Spirit's warning to God's people continually about the danger of unbelief. Let me just remind us of one line from Psalm 95 that's quoted in Hebrews 3.11. It's the last line. As I swore, this is the Lord speaking, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And there's another clue, a big clue, about this whole concept of rest in the Old Testament. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's speaking to that wilderness generation because of their rebellion and their unbelief. They will not enter the land of Canaan. But he says it here, centuries later, they shall not enter my rest. That's a big clue as to what this rest means. My rest, God's rest. And so our author, very insightfully, he sees in this warning from Psalm 95 about the danger of unbelief, he sees in that an implicit promise of God's rest. Even though it's a warning, And even though it's a a judgment, a prohibition, they shall not enter my rest, he sees an implicit promise that there is such a thing as God's rest and there's an invitation to enter. Though he's prohibiting them from entering, there is yet an invitation to enter this rest of God. And so he's going to ask the question, like a good Bible interpreter will, when it says my rest, where else, where else do we read of God's rest how do we explain this? And so it's going to take him back to what we just saw in Genesis. That's where he's, that's where he's going in chapter 4, this implicit promise. Now, we saw that before he gets to that, he first draws out this warning, this danger of unbelief. To beware, to fear, lest we don't enter. So we've developed that over several weeks. As I said, I won't rehash it. But let me pick it up in chapter 4 now. Let's read. I'll start in verse 1 just to get the whole thing and read through verse 11 and try to follow him now. His, his, his argument here is, is hard. Right? There's some parts of the Bible that's just hard. You just got to think more. Right? Don't be afraid to think. <laughs> Most of you guys are not afraid to think, guys and gals at work. So when you come to the Bible, don't be afraid to think and to reason and to, like, what's he saying here? And slow down. So you, you have to do that here. It's not all on the surface. So as I read it, try to follow him and try to pick up the clues that he's putting together and then... We'll walk through it and try to explain it. But let me start there in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, this key idea there, 
any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, wilderness generation, but the word they heard did not profit them because they were not united to those who heard with faith. For we who have believed are entering that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For thus he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them, failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has already been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. So we'll stop there. Not easy to follow. Let's see if we can follow him, okay? And pick this up. Entering God's rest. That's what he's saying. And what he's developing, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 1, and if you have a Bible, really encourage you to have it open and, and follow. You're going to have to follow in the text, okay? really helps to be looking at it. So look back, chapter 4, verse 1, that little phrase, while a promise remains of entering his rest. That's what he needs to develop. How does he know that? How does he know that a promise remains of entering his rest? And what is this rest? So that's what he's going to develop. Now, as we saw last week... He first warns us to fear lest we don't enter his rest. So we thought on that a lot. But we're going to pick it up here in verse 3 and just walk through his reasoning. So verse 3, he's changing now. He's talking to us. He says, for, for we who have believed are entering that rest. We've believed we are entering that rest that God denied to Israel in the wilderness. So now he's got to explain it. Just as. So he's going to start his explanation of how he knows that this rest is remaining, and if you're believing, you are entering that rest. So he's going to give his explanation. Now, as I said, his, his logic here, it's a little hard to follow, his flow of thought. So what I'll do, I'm going to give you what I think is the point, okay? and then I'm going to walk us through it. So let me give you the point first, and then if, hopefully you can see where I'm getting it. So here, here's the point. This is what I think he's saying first. Number one, the continued availability of rest. I'm going to give you this explanation under two big headings. That's the first one. The continued availability of God's rest. And here's the first point. Since God has established his eternal rest, which they, that is the wilderness generation, failed to enter, it remains for others to enter. So in this first part, he's trying to defend his statement that there remains a promise of rest for those who believe. The continued availability of God's rest. That's all he's trying to show. And he's going to show it from the Bible. 
like he always does. I love reading the book of Hebrews because he just shows you how to read the Bible and how to read it really closely and carefully. He's just, remember, this is a sermon and he's explaining the Bible. He's putting clues together from the Bible for us. So the continued availability of God's rest. His point first is God has established his eternal rest. And the wilderness generation failed to enter it. God prohibited them from entering. Therefore, it remains for some to enter. That's where he's going. So, let's, so there's the point. Now let's see if you can get it from the text. Follow as I go here. Verse 3 again. We who have believed have entered that rest just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So he's going back to Psalm 95, to that last verse saying, that generation should not enter, will not enter my rest, and here's where he takes a turn, and this may lose you. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And we're first reading that, you say, that seems like a left turn. What do you mean? I thought he was going to condemn again this generation that failed to believe and call us to believe, but no, it's not what he's doing. He's quoting this text, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There is a rest. They were able to enter, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So why does he say that? Well, just keep following him. He explains it. Verse, what's he referring to when he says his works were finished from the foundation of the world? Verse 4, he tells you. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day. Again, he knows where it's at. He likes to use that language because he's trying to emphasize this is God speaking. <laughs> That's the point. It's God speaking. He has thus said somewhere, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Genesis 2.2. That's where we started. That's why I started there. So, so that's what the end of verse 3 means, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's referring back to the seventh day when God rested, ceased from his work. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So here's what he's doing. He's setting up a tension for us. He's got a tension. And here's the tension. God has established his eternal rest from the seventh day of creation. God has entered that rest, his own permanent entrance into that perpetual rest at the culmination of creation. God has entered that, and these have failed to enter. So the rest is there, God's eternal rest, and these were prohibited from entering the rest. So what gives? There's the tension he's trying to create for us. Here's, here's this, the assumption under this tension. The underlying assumption of this author, rightly, is that God intended for his people to join him in his rest. That's the whole point of the seventh day. The seventh day is not only the culmination of creation, it's the goal of creation. When he rested on the seventh day and he sanctified and blessed it, his intention is for his people to join him in that rest. That's what the Sabbath day was picturing. And so the underlying assumption is God created this rest or he took his rest and invites his people to join him, although he has prohibited these people from entering. So he's attention. And so what's the resolution? Verse 6. So he just resolves it. Therefore, what do you take away from putting those two clues together? 
Therefore, it remains for some to enter. <laughs> it's available. It's been available since the beginning of creation. They didn't enter it. It remains available. That's his resolution. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So we've seen that over and over. They're disobedient. They did not trust God's promises. They failed. Therefore, it remains. So that's his first point. The continued availability of God's rest. Since God has established his eternal rest, they, the wilderness generation, prohibited from entering because of unbelief, it remains for others to enter. So he resolves that tension. Now he keeps going. Because <laughs> he's going to prove that. Say, how do you know it remains? Well, he's going to come back to Psalm 95, verse 7. Let's keep following him. He again fixes a certain day today. He's quoting Psalm 95. Sang through David after so long a time. Psalm 95 was written four centuries after the people failed to enter the promised land. Four centuries later, the Holy Spirit, through David, is saying, today, there's an invitation to enter. That's how you know it remains. Because this, again, think how carefully he reads his Bible. It matters when something was written. Like, the sequence. It's not just all jumbled together. No, this was written 400 years after those events. There's a story being unfolded. And the fact that it was written so much later means it still continues. Do you see his logic? Saying through David after so long a time, as has been said before, that is, as I've already quoted several times, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you hear what he reads into that invitation? Today, if you hear his voice, he means that that's an invitation to enter God's rest. To, to don't do what Israel did. That is, harden your hearts and fail to enter. So the opposite of that is, Hear God's word, enter his rest, right? So he sees Psalm 95 as an ongoing, open invitation to enter the rest of God. That's how he knows it remains. Now here's his next bullet point. <laughs> he just keeps going. Let me give it to you, then I'll show it to you. Since Israel's entering the promised land was not equivalent to entering God's rest, the promise remains for us to enter. So he's building on his argument. That first generation didn't enter, even though God had established his rest from creation. Therefore, it remains open. But here, here's the possible objection. Right? You, you can anticipate the objection. Well, yeah, that first generation didn't enter, but the next one did. Joshua took them into the land. They entered. <laughs> So your argument falls down. Just because that one generation didn't enter, the rest doesn't necessarily mean the rest is still out there because the next generation entered and conquered the land under Joshua. So you see what he says, verse 8? For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Where is he going? Psalm 95, same argument, is written for centuries after those events. It's written hundreds of years after Joshua led them into the land and they settled the land. 
So if that was all there was to the rest of God, then he wouldn't still be speaking in Psalm 95 of an invitation to enter his rest. Psalm 95 is written in the time of David. It's either written by David or the time of David. Psalm 95 is written while the people are in the land. And it's still an invitation to enter his rest. So the land can't be the rest, ultimately. Do you see his argument? Again, he's just building on the storyline of the Bible, how it works out. Joshua did not give them rest. Now, why would he point to that? Why would he say that? Well, if you read the book of Joshua, we studied the book of Joshua a long time ago. When Joshua conquers the land and the tribes settle, we're told three times, three times in the book of Joshua, first one, Joshua 21, 44, that the land had rest or the people rested. It uses that key word three times in Joshua, picking up on this theme, that they rested. The land had rest. And you might think, well, there it is. There's the fulfillment of that rest. But yet God continues to invite his people to enter his rest. So so he knows that. So he's picking up, yes, we could say in a sense the land of Canaan is a type of that ultimate final rest that God has established since creation. But it's only a type. It's not the final thing. So Joshua, though in a sense they rested, he gave them rest, that's not the final rest that's in view here. So that rest in the land was an outward type or symbol of ultimate rest. They, and mainly they defeated their enemies and took the land. So there, there's, there's the first heading. You follow him? <laughs> that's all, all of that is to show the continued availability of God's rest. It's, it's open. Here's the second heading, last heading. The eternal nature of God's rest. So from the continued availability of God's rest to the nature of this rest, this ongoing eternal nature of God's rest. So look at verse 9 now. He just restates his prior conclusion. Remember, prior conclusion was there remains a rest for some to enter. Verse 9 There remains, if Joshua didn't give it to him, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So he's restating his conclusion, but he's doing it in a grander form. Look again closely at verse 9. There remains, therefore, and we expect him to say, a rest for the people of God. But here he changes the word. He changes the word. He uses a word that's used nowhere else in the Bible. It's used a little bit in other literature, Greek literature, but nowhere else in the Bible. He doesn't simply say there remains a rest, but he uses this word built off of Sabbath. Sabbatismos. <laughs> Don't think he coins it. It maybe was a word, but it's just never used in the Bible. It's not the word for rest. But it's the idea of a celebration, a Sabbath keeping. If, if the word rest that he uses all through this denotes a resting place, that's the idea, it's a resting place that we enter, the place of future blessedness, this word conveys the idea of what will be enjoyed in that resting place. So here's how I would say it. 
the nature of this rest a Sabbath celebration. I think that's the best way to translate that word. There remains a Sabbath celebration. Conveys the joy, delight, and worship that characterizes this rest. It's the nature of this rest. It's a Sabbath celebration. So not merely the ceasing from work, although that is absolutely true, but in that ceasing of work, a celebration of worship. Celebration of Sabbath. Again, unfortunately, as we know through reading the Gospels, the Jewish people had added so much to Sabbath observance that it was such, became such a burden to the people, didn't it? Such a burden. Every little jot and tittle they had to prescribe and go way beyond the Word of God. But the Sabbath... Yes, there was a law of Sabbath, and it had regulations, but there was to be a joy of it that we're we're experiencing this rest of God after six hard days of labor and work. We're ceasing that, and we're enjoying this celebration, worship, delight, joy. That's the connotation there of this word. Again, that's why that keeping of Sabbath under the Mosaic law was ultimately pointing forward to this final rest. This is just a duty for the people to keep. It was joining God in this rest. It was a celebration of joy and worship that we were set free from toil and bondage. So that's the nature of it. It's full of joy. Verse 10 He adds, though, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So, yes, it is a joyful celebration, but it's joyful celebration because we do cease from work, toil. The one who, now, verse 10, again, is a a bit... Obscure, who he's referring to, something he's referring to Jesus there. I don't think that's the point. He'll get to Jesus in a minute. I think he's referring to, ultimately, to believers who have finally entered rest. This rest, this future final entrance. You see it, the one who has entered has himself also rested from his works as God did from him. Again, he's just connecting creation, rest of God with what we experience So the way that God worked six days and then enjoyed that rest, that cessation and that enjoyment, so true ultimately of us. So here's here's the next final bullet there. It's ultimately, this nature of this rest is ultimately a rest from the works of this life, including, no doubt, toil, pain, futility, and weariness. The idea The one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works. Again, here, I don't think he has works righteousness in view. This isn't Paul writing about works versus faith. He's not saying the one who's believed doesn't work, although that is a truth. That's not what he's after here. He's just using work very generally. The one who has entered finally into the rest of God 
has rested from his work. Again, he's not saying that work is bad. His work is good. We know that if you have a good theology of work. Work is good. Work is God-honoring. Even our work today in this fallen world brings some sense of joy and satisfaction and purpose. It's all kinds of good things to work, yet it's all under this fallen world and the curse. And so it always involves toil and futility and struggle, including the struggle against sin and unbelief that he has in view here. It is labor. It is labor by the sweat of your brow, as I said, from Genesis 3 onward is our work. Yes, there's a purpose and God-honoring purpose in it, but it is still under this rubric of the fall or the curse, and therefore it is labor. And the one who has entered this rest has rested from his works. What an inviting metaphor for our final salvation. That's what he's talking about here, I think. Our final salvation. Rest. Rest. Oh, rest from the weariness of this fallen age. Yes, with toil and the sweat of our brow and frustration and disappointment and disease, sickness and heartbreak and depression. Rest. Rest, he says. Cease from that labor. Rest from that work. Refreshment. I mean, who who doesn't enjoy, after a long, hard day of toil, who doesn't enjoy rest? We're made for that. Even in this fallen world, we enjoy rest. Can you imagine when set free from the fall and sin and the curse, what that refreshment will be, what that enjoyment will be, unending recreation in the true sense of that word, refreshment. That's the image. The book of Revelation actually picks up on this very same theme in a verse often quoted at funerals, reads this, Revelation 14, 13, I'll put it on the screen. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Blessed are the dead. Often are those words put together. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors. What a beautiful verse, right? A text of what this ultimate entrance into God's rest is, a rest from our labors. Now, we we so often hear and use, almost flippantly, the little phrase, rest in peace. May he rest in peace. For the believer, that is wonderfully true. Not rest in the sense of some kind of soul sleep, but rest in the ultimate sense from your labors. Yes, it's a rest in peace. 
But for those who are not in the Lord, do you see it? Those who die in the Lord, those who are not in the Lord, it's just the opposite of rest. Death will be the opposite of rest. It's not rest to experience the judgment of God. All those depictions through the Bible of how it describes that judgment of God as the place where the flame is never quenched and the worm does not die. This unending, unceasing agony, strife is the opposite of rest. Are you in the Lord? This promise is true. Now that, that, that leads me here to the conclusion. Back there in Hebrews 4, notice how he concludes. He comes back to his main exhortation. Be diligent to enter his rest. Oh, if this is true, if this rest is remaining, then be diligent. So here's the conclusion. Look at verse 11 after giving us all of this. Let us therefore, knowing this is true, this rest remains in the nature, be diligent to enter that rest, lest any one of you fall through following the same example of disobedience. He's back to his burden, his main exhortation. Oh, don't miss this rest. Be diligent to enter his rest. Now again, he's speaking firstly to Christians. Again, he includes himself, just like he did in verse 1. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. He's speaking to us. He includes himself. Now, remember back in verse 3, where we began this morning, he said... We who have believed are entering that rest. Those who are trusting in Christ, God's promise in Christ, this final revelation of Christ, we who have believed this good news, we are entering his rest. That's how you enter, through faith, faith alone in Christ. But we're not there yet, right? That rest entrance is future. And so he says to us who are believing, be diligent to enter that rest, that future entrance. Be diligent to enter that rest. It is, my only point here, a zealous pursuit of entrance into God's rest through ongoing gospel obedience. This has been his burden in this whole section. The danger of unbelief. Guard your heart. Fear. Don't remember what happened to Israel. He brings it up again. Keep trusting Christ. Beware of unbelief. Look for the uprisings of unbelief. Be diligent to enter that rest. I said it last week. I'll repeat it. The Christian life is not casual. Ho-hum. I think I believed somewhere in the past. I remember I was baptized when I was nine. Praise God if that's true and you're continuing. Are you... As Jesus said, agonizing to enter the narrow gate. (laughs) That's the word he used. Strive to enter. That's the idea here. To be diligent is to make every effort. To strive to make every effort. It's not casual. Again, that doesn't mean we're trying to earn our way into this rest. We're going to prove it to God. No. We're continuing to trust God. We're continuing in gospel obedience. We're continuing to believe. We're, We're putting sin to death. Be diligent to enter his rest, you who have believed. Again, he ends with that final warning, doesn't he? 
lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Just, that's what he leaves ringing in our ears. He comes back to that example of Israel who had such great advantage and died in unbelief in the wilderness under God's judgment. He wants that sobering before us so that we're diligent to enter. We have this promise. So what's your diligence look like? Are you diligently pursuing Christ with other believers in his word, communing with him, seeking him, following him, gathering with the church, fighting against unbelief, using, as I said last week, the means of grace to continue in gospel obedience, gospel belief? Does it look like diligence in your following of Christ? If you have not believed and are not entering this rest, let me, let me end with the best place I think I can end with the invitation of Jesus himself. Listen to these words. Hear them anew if you're a Christian. And if you're not, listen to what Jesus invites you to. This is Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. <laughs> there it is. The entrance into this final rest is future. But there's a sense in which now you can begin experiencing this rest through faith in Christ. Come to me. What an invitation. Come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, you're weary of your sin, weary of just the purposelessness of this life, the futility, the struggle, come to me. I will give you real rest. My yoke is easy. My load is light. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you shall find rest for your souls. Are you enjoying that this morning? Oh, be diligent to enter his rest. Let's pray together. What a glorious good news this is, Father. Inviting us to join your rest. Your rest that you established since creation. May we be diligent to enter through faith in Christ. Guard our hearts from unbelief and falling away. Cause us to treasure Jesus together and to enter that rest. Set our hope on this final rest. May it fill us with a sense, even now, of delight and joy and perseverance in our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.